0: Welcome to the Truthiverse, my name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me, and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. Hey, Brendan here, and welcome to Truthiverse, where I speak with an eclectic range of truth tellers, critical thinkers, and innovators who will help you unleash truth and freedom in your life. I'm all about unleashing human potential, and speaking of which, if you haven't already, then please do check out my totally free masterclass, How to Evolve Yourself Without Hard Work, Meditation, or Spending Thousands, at evolveyourself.live. So while the artificial and inauthentic is crumbling all around us, I will help you find your center and open the door to accelerated evolution, flow, synchronicity, and personal growth and healing. You'll notice over time that my guests tend to be system busters and or visionaries like me. I agree with Einstein that we can't solve problems at the level of consciousness that created them. We must evolve. Knowledge really is power, and if you ask me, it's about damn time we claimed ours, seized the day, and started building the free, beautiful, and clean world we all know is possible deep down. We can't succeed collectively if we remember the magnificence of who we really are, which is what my work, especially my writing, is all about. You can learn more about me or grab my book, The Grand Illusion, at brendandmurphy.com. In the meantime, let's get into this epic chat with medical heretic Dr. Andy Kaufman, Andy is a natural healing consultant, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, expert witness and inventor. He believes the human body is full of its own natural wisdom and can heal itself from virtually any insult. If you support your body, then it will return to vitality, a perspective that I fully agree with. For his full bio and links, check out the show notes. For now, let's dive into what may be Andy's most revealing and most explosive interview yet. Enjoy and please do share the knowledge.
1: Andy, thanks so much for being here.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, Brendan. Thank you.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. So, look, you are a figure of controversy and, and definitely significance at the moment. You are <laughs> you're having videos taken <laughs> down left, right, and center, like it's uh, going out of fashion. How do you reconcile being, like, you know, a clinical practitioner of medicine and, and then taking on this role of, you know, being what, part of the the spearhead against this onslaught of of tyranny? I mean, you know, you're in many ways, taking a big chance and a risk being so vocal and so visible saying the things that you're saying, which I strongly agree with what you're saying, but we all know what happens to medical heretics, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, I didn't make this decision overnight. I actually put in some serious consideration, but since I had the direct experience inside the medical system, you know, I have a unique understanding of how things work. And once I fully understood what was going on there? I knew that I had to get myself out of that system, so that I could do other things that could be really helpful for people. Because that's really was my initial intention—that I wanted to be able to help people who were suffering. Pretty, pretty simple. But I, I couldn't really do that in the constraints of that system. And I, once I fully realized that, you know, I knew I had to make strides towards finding a way to work with people successfully, and in the process of that, I feel it's important to let people know what's really going on because they have to make their own decisions about this. And uh, if they're not informed, they're not going to be able to make good decisions for their health and their family's health.
0: Yeah, right on. Exactly. So, I'm wondering now you know you've got you know this background you've been in the system for a long time and you're saying you were seeing these things I mean what were the sort of the moments or the the watershed moments or insights that you accrued along the way that made you go oh this is this is not right like I can't be effective here
1: Yeah well that's a good question I was training in psychiatry at Duke University and pretty early on I was seeing for one thing that people were not getting better from medications And, you know, when you're starting out, they put you in the most kind of acute situation uh, in the hospital, in the emergency department, and you deal with a lot of urgent issues and kind of making the decisions to put people in the hospital or not, but you're not working with them, you know, over time. And so, you know, I was told, oh, well, once you start working with people, you know, in the outpatient clinics, then you'll see uh, the the medications working. You're just, you know, it's because an artifact of how you're practicing. Right. So I was looking forward to that moment and, you know, and actually that's kind of a liberating part of the psychiatric training because it's when you're no longer kind of a a work slave to be on call all the time and cover all the emergencies and put out fires. Now you can really, you know, work with people over time and see if you can really apply, you know, your skills to help people recover from serious emotional problems. And what I found there is that, once again, the medications really did not affect any improvement or not any meaningful improvement. Like you could, you know, sometimes in the short term help someone fall asleep with a sedating medication. There were a couple of times when medications really could be beneficial, like there's a blood pressure medicine that can reduce and sometimes eliminate traumatic nightmares Right. So that's uh, a useful thing. And there were opportunities to help people with that. But that's kind of a small thing because it doesn't allow someone to completely turn their life around and improve their relationships, get back to work, you know, kind of be productive member of society again. And that's what I was hoping to do, because, you know, maintaining someone in a state of misery and perpetuity is not really a very rewarding proposition. (laughs) (laughs) Unless unless you're a sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, once I was really observing this and I was looking for other ways to help people and that kind of never stopped. And when I was on my own and I, I was able to make decisions without someone looking over my shoulder and telling me, oh, you have to give this med or that med. I was started using lead medications less and less and got to the point where basically I was really tapering all the patients that came to me off of their medicines and trying to work with them in other ways. And in the process of that, I came across natural healing, which initially was from this book by Kelly Brogan called A Mind of Your Own. And she's also a psychiatrist. And she basically adapted some of the protocols of Nicholas Gonzalez, who was successfully treating cancer patients with mostly nutritional interventions. And so she adapted those for psychiatry and wrote this great book where, you know, the first Mm -hmm. half of it criticizes antidepressants and she does an excellent job. And then she lays out this protocol. So I had an opportunity to try this both on myself and with someone Uh, that I was a former colleague, and the results were pretty amazing. So for the first time, like I worked with someone with a serious anxiety problem, and just by changing their diet, they were able to essentially cure the condition completely. So I was really, you know, blown away when I had this experience, and it sent me on a mission to study, you know, as much as I could about various natural healing techniques and started working with clients outside of the medical system right, as a consultant to teach them the information of how they could heal themselves. And this was a, a really an awesome opportunity because it allows me to apply some very important almost spiritual principles, like, for example, the Hermetic Law of Cause and Effect, because generally when we're in an ill or diseased state, right, there's a cause that we have some control over and we may not know that cause, right, and that's where I can help figure that out but we're essentially responsible for causing it in some way. And so that, that's great news because that means we can reverse that cause and allow our body to heal in a natural way. And it's so much more rewarding to see people uh, go through that process and do it on their own, right, through their own action, their own achievement, and then reach a state where they are now healthy again and also realize that they're responsible for keeping themselves healthy. And, you know, that's the way we can, we can all live a much better life, I think.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's beautiful and, and that's where we're coming from and that's the direction I think humanity is definitely moving in for the most part, um, notwithstanding the, <laughs> the desperation of Big Pharma and what have you. <laughs> um, but it, it raises an interesting dichotomy. When you have that perspective that you have, those experience of the two different worlds, what does that sort of tell you looking back on your training in the medical system as to the way that they you know, indoctrinate students into a certain kind of thinking and outlook and a worldview versus what you have learned since then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I can see it very clearly how everything fits together. You know, going through it, you're so inundated and overwhelmed with the amount of material you're expected to learn. It's really hard to look up. I mean, you know, the only thing people have time for is drinking. (laughs) You know, which actually, you know, among physicians, there's a, a much higher rates of addiction as well as suicide compared to almost all other professions. Yeah. So you know, there's there's a lot of emotional emotional turmoil that goes around this, and I think some of it has to do with the cognitive dissonance of realizing that you're actually causing harm to a lot of people, even though that's not really your intention. Yeah. yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, that's why you go into the
1: <coughs> medical field, right? To to help people, supposedly. Right. But, you know, like if you look back historically, right in the early 1900s, there was a concerted effort by initially the American Medical Association, but also the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller uh, Foundation and Institute to basically change the whole medical education system around. And it was reduced from something like over 500 medical schools, which were largely teaching natural medicine, like naturopathy, as well as homeopathy, to only 50 so, you know, 90% reduction in medical schools, sanctioned university medical schools that really only taught allopathic medicine, which only provides for, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, surgery and radiation therapy. It doesn't provide any nutrition or natural therapy or physical modalities like chiropractic and massage because those were also squeezed out, you know, in those medical schools, although they still exist in a marginalized way in our current healthcare system. Yeah. Increasingly marginalized. (laughs) Yeah. So this um, whole venture, you know, that was heralded by the Flexner Report in 1910 was really uh, a business venture in one sense that it created a business model, right, which was uh, largely based on germ theory or what I call sometimes the warfare model of medicine, where there's, you know, an outside force, that you have no control over that can come and cause you to be ill at any time right whether it be a germ or something that causes cancer or something that causes an autoimmune disease right they're all pretty much unexplained or something outside our control then you're dependent on the healthcare system to get drugs surgery and radiation to basically just make those things tolerable but there's no promise of a cure and they, you know, don't always even understand the cause or they, you know, claim that they don't understand the cause. And so that whole model all stems from the education. And I think, you know, so they inserted people from representing Rockefeller and Carnegie's interests in all of the board of directors of those medical schools so that they could keep tabs on the curriculum. And more recently, I think a lot of pharmaceutical companies have infiltrated the medical schools and they sponsor various types of lectures and other things and, you know, give free stuff and food and, you know, market to the medical students. And they're put in this model where they're overwhelmed. Like, so first, it's really competitive to get in. It selects certain types of people because of the types of entrance exams and things that they look for in the applicants. applicants. And then once you're in there, they work you so hard with this voluminous amount of material, you know, right from day one, that you don't have time to question anything or look up, you know, for a real understanding, a rational understanding, you know. And so they present a principle as it's really important, like uh, the principle of having a gold standard to compare a diagnostic test to. Right, but then they and they might even go through a little bit one example where there's a good one, but they but they don't apply that to everything that you do, and so you never uh, really understand the full prima facie justification and, and experimental evidence for all the things they teach you, and you don't have time to, so you accept basically what they say about what, what causes this disease or how you treat this disease. And a lot of it is really just matching the right diagnostic test and matching the right medication or surgical procedure.
0: Yeah, symptom matching, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then when you go to your clinical rotations, they have this kind of hazing procedure. They call it pimping, where they ask you questions. Uh, right, yeah, they're getting it right out of that. You're the, you're the prostitute, right, being pimped out. <laughs> and you know it's talked about openly in those circles and what it is is that they're they're asking you specific questions that are you know like these pearls of wisdom or little difficult idiosyncratic anatomical structures basically you know to prove that you studied harder than everybody else and you deserve you know special special acknowledgement or treatment but really that just allows you to participate and, you know, the other people who get it wrong are kind of scorned or ignored, you know, left behind. And uh, so so this is the kind of mentality. So you spend all your time trying to, like, find out, okay, what's he going to ask about? Like, I heard he asked about this. And they get that book and, you know, like, study 30 pages in it, you know, and go in there and hope that they ask that question <laughs> that you know the answer to. Wow. <laughs> right? So and then they deprive you of sleep and make you just wait around to do a mundane task while someone else is really not considering you at all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, right. so there's a lot of this kind of mistreatment and abuse and all that time, you know, you're living on loans, you know, in relative poverty, and uh, you have no time for your social life. And so it's, it's really, you know, by the time you're out, you're just so ready to enjoy life, you know, that you don't think about things too much and you end up getting yourself in a bunch of debt. And then if you, you know, want to change directions at that point, then you're risking a lot you know, the stability yeah. of your family and your life. Yeah, and I imagine it would be the worst nightmare of anyone
0: who comes out the other side of that system, who survives the, the hazing and the, the just the brutality of it, their worst nightmare to then come out and and realise, oh, my God, like, they've given me this tiny little window into reality and there's all this other stuff out here and I've been, like, it's been deliberately omitted and I haven't been fully, properly educated here. I've really, I've gotten the raw deal here. But, like, you can't, how, how would you, how do you tell people this because at that point they're so invested in in the model and they're learning and all the time and effort and what they've gone through to then find out that so much of it is is wrong or founded on wrong assumptions i mean it would be the worst the worst thing ever right so there's a lot of like emotional armoring and psychological shielding that we see from medical practitioners a lot of the time who haven't you know they they don't want to hear from a lay person that for example they don't think vaccines work or whatever like it's it's just like there's this wall that comes up. It's like, you don't tell me, I tell you because I've got the piece of paper on the wall kind of mentality, you know? So, yeah, I mean, you, obviously you've picked up on this, this psychological dynamic unfolding because you've seen it up close and personal, right?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's part of the authority figure, you know, mind control that we have since we're really young, right? That you always, certain people you trust. I mean, look how much trust we put in the medical system. You know, who else are we going to drop our pants for? and bend over. I mean, no, you know, like that, that is funny in a sense, right? But it's serious. That's the most intimate thing that you can do. You know, the only time (laughs) that I can think of besides that you're going to do it is when there's a police officer (laughs) with a weapon, you know, (laughs) yeah. but it's not going to be voluntary. It's going to be coerced. Right. So this is how much trust we, we place in physicians and they know that they're kind of groomed. You know, the white coat is, uh, right. Like a spell, it creates a certain uh, uniform of the authority, right? Yeah. It's clean, it's pure, yeah, right. I mean, it's not what it really is, but that's what it represents, and it's very powerful. I mean, even they even taught us about studies where uh, people's blood pressure was artificially uh, high because someone with a white coat took their blood pressure yeah. versus someone wearing, you know, different clothing. So, you know, it's a serious psychological factor. And the truth is that doctors aren't really educated about vaccines. We're just told basically that they are one of the miracles of the 20th century. One of the most important things that we do as physicians, they save lives. And we're told to study the schedule, which, you know, is very complex these days. (laughs) So so that we're the ones held accountable, like on the pediatric rotation, uh, that they get the right Vaccine. And, you know, that's, that's something that a medical student could be very successful at, <laughs> right? Because they have the skills to be able to look at the chart and understand it. And uh, then they, you know, get a little check mark or a smile for doing that, even though it's really, uh, you know, not doing what they think it's doing. So I bought, you know, that story as well because I didn't really think to criticize it. Yeah. And I'd always grown up thinking it was a great thing that we didn't have, you know, diphtheria and polio, you know, I I remember my mom even telling me stories about when she was young and how sad it was that there were other kids who were paralyzed, you know, so I thought that's what I'm supporting, right? Uh, So it's a no-brainer, but when I started researching it, I was really surprised to see that that's the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah, Uh,
0: and when did that, for you, when was that that you sort of started looking into that to find out?
1: I'd say it's about about three years ago.
0: Okay. So, I mean, you, you've really, you lasted quite a while there in the paradigm, the vaccine paradigm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, what happened is that as I started being aware of the problems with medicine, I started learning about things sort of one at a time. And I think I probably strayed away from that. And maybe because I had young children and it was too difficult to look at, Yeah. right? Or, you know, I used to have this next door neighbor who's a pediatrician and, He would put up these like posts on social media that were, I mean, now they're kind of like Nazi-like about vaccines, but you know, like basically you're, you're like a traitor, you're a criminal, you're a murderer if you don't vaccinate your kids kind of attitude. Mm. And so maybe I was a little intimidated from looking into it. Although I should have recognized that that kind of strong emotional response actually indicates there's something there, you know, that's not, that's not right. Mm. So I definitely wish I had looked at sooner and I could have spared my children some of these uh, shots. But once I figured it out, you know, that was that was the end of it. There was going to be no more injections in my family as long as long as I was making the decisions.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and this is the difference that, you know, we see. I'm sure you've noticed this. People go from being in the camp in, you know, as card carrying members of the Church of Modern Medicine or the, the cult of jabism, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and the, the, the directional flow of membership is always away from. It's never over to. It's like because we are all born into this matrix of of medical propaganda, so we all think, great, best thing since sliced bread, vaccines saved humanity, blah blah blah. How do we ever survive without them? And the direction is is always from you know that sort of naive trust into. Oh, hang on. That's, that doesn't look right. Oh, hang on. What's this? Oh, someone I know has been injured. Oh, now I'm hurt. You're like, or whatever it is, there's a process, but it's never someone who starts out as a disbeliever and goes in the other direction
1: into belief. I'm sure you've noticed this. Well, that's a great point. I've never thought about it that way, but you're right. I can't think of one example. You know, sometimes people backslide a little bit, but it's generally out of, you know, they're in an acute desperate situation, or they uh, don't really have the knowledge of how to deal with something and they don't know the right person to, you know, contact to get the knowledge from. Yeah. Usually they regret it because they end up taking something that makes them sicker. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it might, it might relieve things originally, right? Like, so a lot of times they give people steroids, you know, for a, a variety of different things, even like bad allergic reactions. And so it might help with that, but then, you know, then you end up with other problems from it. Yeah. So I look forward to a future when actually this information that, that I know about, and you know, I'll tell you one thing really important about healing that there's not just one way, yeah. right? Like there might be certain approaches that I use, but other people could use totally different approaches and still be successful. Hmm. So it's not like an exclusive proprietary blend, right? It, but there's this body of knowledge out there. And I look forward to a future when it's much more accessible and that it won't be hidden with all of this other, you know, profit-driven messages or trying to adapt the warfare medical model to botanicals, right? And like take, you know, this herbal preparation to kill all the bacteria, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like that That uh, defeats the point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So I had a question that was kind of like a comment to follow on from there, but I've lost it now. I thought it's a great line of a line of um, conversation, by the way. I haven't heard you talk about this stuff so much in in your interviews, and I think it's it's really useful for people to hear like the journey of someone like yourself who's gone through the system and knows it inside out, say things like, you know, we don't get educated on, on vaccination. We don't, we're, we're not told anything about this and that and we are trained just to into the cut. What is it? Cut poison burn model. And that's how we're supposed to operate, you know?
1: Yeah. I like that cut poison burn. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can use that. It's not mine. <laughs> the, the, me, the medical Trinity. Yeah, that's
0: right. Well, this is it. Like I was going to say earlier, right? A lot of people don't realize medicine has become the secular religion for the modern world. You know, like the white, like you were saying, the white coat, the white coat is like the priestly robe now. It's like, that's the equivalent. We look to the high priest, high priest of medicine instead of the guy at the church now. And it's like, that's where we've displaced our, our faith to, as you were saying,
1: yeah, well, I mean, right at this moment in history, that is absolutely true to the highest degree, right? I mean, there's either someone in a white coat or someone pretending to be representing white coats. Bill Gates. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, perhaps, who is telling every government leader what to do. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, yeah, I can only imagine how, how weird that must look to an actual trained medical professional with a brain on, in their heads like yourself. Let's talk, let's switch... Slightly into the whole coronavirus situation that we've got going. I know you probably talked yourself to death about it at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably doing multiple interviews a day on it. What's just come out from the CDC is that we've got the the mortality data now that we haven't had this whole time. And, Mm And it's not showing what they've been telling us we should expect to see, is it? It's showing us something very different.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I'm just going to, um, sorry, I'm bringing up the current numbers from today because okay. I've been uh, following this. And yes, so we're just at about the, almost the exact same number of deaths as last year. Uh, 1% fewer right now. It varies from day to day. It's, it's been in the 90s. Uh, usually anywhere from, I've seen it from 93 up to 99.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we are still at this point, you know, having survived this pandemic, we we still haven't quite had as many people die as at this point last year. Is that
1: that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, as for as far as the United States, I haven't looked for every single country, but in the United States, absolutely, there have been slightly less people dying this year compared to the average of the last three years. So some of those years would have been much higher because that's the average right of three years. So if we compared it with one of the years, we'd be much lower. Uh, If we compare it with a different year, it might be a little bit higher, but it's comparable with the average.
0: Yeah. Okay. So So, obviously uh, this doesn't
1: look so good for Tony Fauci. (laughs) Well, I think Tony Fauci is, is well aware of this actually. And even, you know, I mean, this was a little while ago, but on February 28th, he wrote an editorial to the new England journal and said that the COVID-19 is akin to a seasonal flu pandemic, which, you know, has a much lower mortality. And obviously we never do anything special about that. Yeah. Right. There's no special policies about that at all. They, you know, put some public service ads to get a flu shot, but that's about it. Mm, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I recall Fauci, you know, sending out into the media, these predictions, these wild predictions of how many people we could expect to be killed by COVID-19 and just doesn't seem to have quite worked out that way.
1: Yeah, well, those uh, computer models were obviously just totally manufactured. I mean, you know, anytime the primary data comes from a computer model, you should uh, probably just dismiss it outright or assume that the real data will be the opposite of what it shows because it's so easy to manipulate that because what happens is you have a model and it has all these different variables that affect it. But only a few of the variables are known. So for all the other ones, you have to make up numbers. And if you can make up numbers, then you can put them to whatever you want. So you make up some numbers. You see how it affects the model. You want the model to look a certain way. So you tweak those numbers and say, does it look that way or not? And you go through this iterative process until the model looks the way you want. And they essentially had like an exponential model, which uh, looked very, very scary, but was nowhere near reality and not based on any evidence, just just based on making up these parameters. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's a, that's a fairly epic fail by, by the looks of it. So if we follow this line of, and I want to get into this for people who, who aren't aware of, you know, all the interviews that you have done and the presentations that you've given, which mostly have probably been taken down from YouTube now, this whole thing is, is largely driven by, a particular form of test, the PCR test. And so I, I've heard you talk about this and I've looked at it and, you know, I think you explain it very well. How reliable is this test that we've got these, this, this global, almost global lockdown now based on this, largely on this test? I mean, how reliable is it really? What's it actually doing?
1: Well, I mean, we've seen that it, it uh, can test positive for a piece of fruit. So that's uh, definitely a great indication of the reliability. And I don't think that's really an exaggeration. No. So, you know, there's so many problems with this test, but the the main criticism I have is that we uh, don't know or have any idea really what it's testing for. And the reason for that is because the way that, so this test doesn't test for a virus and we're talking about the RT-PCR test, the most Mm -hmm. common uh, test that's used. It tests for a a sequence of RNA, which is like DNA, but a little bit different. And they say that that's what's in the virus. But the way that they found the sequence of RNA was by a procedure where they took uh, lung fluid, or in one other experiment, they took um, a throat swab from someone who was sick, and that contained a mixture of a whole bunch of things, right? Yeah. Because there are throat cells or lung cells in the lung fluid. There's bacteria, fungi, like all of the hundreds of species of organisms that live in our body. And there might be free RNA. There might be RNA from exosomes and other uh, particles that come off our own cells. So there's all these different sources of RNA. And what they did is they sequenced some very short strands, But they used probes, which have a short sequence that kind of starts this amplification process. And they use those from known sequences that they say are from viruses. But also these sequences were constructed in a similar way. And what they do is they just take all these short strands that they think are from a virus and they piece them together into a longer piece and kind of fill in the gaps. So it's not like they... If you were really to see, you know, what the RNA from a virus would show, what you would have to do is isolate and purify that virus so it's the only thing in the test tube. Yeah. And then, then you could take the RNA directly from it, and it would be like one long strand, and you could sequence that one strand continuously. But they're not doing that procedure for some reason because I think they wouldn't be able to because there is no particle that they'd be able to isolate. But instead, they're taking this mixture of a bunch of different types of genetic material in a body fluid, and they're just amplifying little tiny pieces and putting them together uh, like like a jigsaw puzzle, except not all the pieces are there. Some of the pieces they have to make up. And this is what the test is based on. So it's basically a made-up thing. Most likely, most of the RNA sequences are actually human. And then there are these pieces that are made up that come from a, like a, a library or a database from prior viruses that they did the same exact procedure. Okay. And basically, once they get a new sequence that they do this way, then they put it in the database and then they can use sequences from that to match to future ones. right? But you can see that if this is all our own sequences... That we're ending up just making a, a database of matching our own sequences, but having them like out of phase with each other in various ways because of this recombination process. Yeah. So, by doing this, you get a test that's measuring whatever these sequences are, that it's kind of like a, uh, a Frankenstein RNA sequence, and it's going to probably be in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the preliminary data show. But there's no way to know how accurate it is because there's nothing to compare it to that's a gold standard, right? Like there's no test that shows the virus in anybody. There's only been like a handful of people that they've even done an experiment where they say they isolated a virus, although they didn't actually do that. So all of these other people, like none of them have been shown to have a virus. There's no test that actually measures a virus. So whatever this measures, I don't know, but one study that tried to estimate the accuracy said it had an 80% false positive rate. So that would be horrible for a test because four out of five positive tests would not actually be positive. Yeah. But the, the point is that if, if you don't even know what it's measuring, then in terms of a, being a test for this illness, then, which doesn't exist anyway, then the accuracy is zero because <laughs> there's no link to the illness yeah. to say that it's measuring something like that. Yeah. So, but it's easy to design a test like this in such a way that you get a certain amount of them positive. Uh, One is because you're probably using human sequences to begin with. So you're testing other humans. So the ones that have the same sequences would be positive. And then also like if with the PCR test itself, what it is is an amplification test. And so it can measure tiny, tiny little pieces that there's only one copy of. And by doing that, like if you amplify it enough, then you can make almost any sample positive because it also amplifies the noise signal. Now, I'm not saying that they're doing that all the time, but that could be done depending on how you dilute the sample and how many cycles of amplification you run. Right. And so we see that like in, in Tanzania, when they sent these samples, right, they sent a jackfruit and a papaya and a goat and some other kind of bird right. And these all came back positive. And so you see that, you know, that obviously none of those uh, creatures or vegetables, (laughs) right. Had, had any illness. So essentially the test is completely meaningless other than as a purpose to make people afraid and use, I mean, they're going to use this to decide whether to take people out of their homes, right. They've already announced this um, in several places.
0: Yeah, and I've seen that World Health Organization video where they talked about, oh, we may may have to come into your homes and take your kids away and this kind of thing. Um, And now they're talking about it. There was an official just recently in the U.S. who was echoing those sentiments, and I wrote a note here somewhere. I'm sure you've seen it. I can't remember his name,
1: but talking about the same thing. Well, there was a health commissioner in uh, one of the cities in California who was saying that, so that might be who you're referring to, but I'm sure it's going to be repeated a lot.
0: Yeah, and it seems like California is, is really a, a testing ground for this at the moment. They're really rolling out a lot there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They said they plan to hire 20,000 people to be the contact tracing force, you know, basically like the SS. <sighs> it's crazy.
0: I mean, this is what I'm saying. When, when I say that the, the medical system has become the Inquisition, like that's, that's the Inquisition right there. You're going out and you're hunting down the witches. You know, that's, what, that's yeah. the equivalent, the modern equivalent of this is the witch hunt. The witch hunt is on.
1: It, it'd be very easy to subvert this system, you know, if you uh, don't want someone to have privileges to go out or you want to pull them out of their home, just say that, oh, you know, on their phone it said that they were in contact with someone who was positive, right? And there, there's your justification.
0: Yeah, it's it's insane how draconian this is actually becoming. So... If I can go back to this, this whole like issue of COVID, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and all this stuff, I mean, there have been articles claiming and it seems like this whole thing really comes down to the problem of isolation. Like no one seems to be able to actually genuinely isolate a virus and, and positively identify this is the
1: virus. Yes. So this is uh, the central problem in virology. And uh, early on, after the electron microscope was invented uh, in, I think, 1929, they they didn't really start looking for viruses right away, but they definitely did in the 40s and into the 50s. And basically what happened is that they really couldn't find anything that they could say was a virus because they saw all this damaged tissue and extracellular debris, and they couldn't really isolate things from each other. But this was different than when they did experiments with bacteria and other lower organisms, where they had something similar to a virus in bacteria that they call a phage and or a bacteria eater. And with those particles, they actually were able to isolate and purify them without too much difficulty. And they've done it for dozens of different species of bacteria. So what happened was in 1954, I believe... Um, Enders, who was a a Nobel laureate, he came up with a different procedure where he mixed the basically body fluid or tissue from the sick individual with cell culture as well as antibiotics. And the justification for the antibiotics was that it would make sure that there were no bacteria that would cause damage to the cell culture that would be mistaken for viral damage. But what happens is that the bacteria actually damage the cell culture because they're toxic. And so you take the degrading proteins and other metabolites in the body fluid as well, those become toxic over time as well because there's no system there to clear the toxins away, right? There's no blood flow or liver. It's just a tissue culture. So they observed cell damage to the tissue in the tissue culture or the cell culture, And said it's from the virus, but didn't do in a control experiment where you have the same tissue culture, the same antibiotics, and maybe lung fluid or body fluid from a healthy person. And then see do you get the same cell damage? And what you'd find, because this experiment was later done for measles, that you would actually get the same damage. But this was so successful as a publication, and it overcame all of the efforts that they had before to isolate a particle, that they carried this procedure forward. And basically, it's been taught to all the virologists subsequently. And they've basically just repeated, and they've been told that this is evidence of isolating the virus because the virus you know, allegedly caused this damage to the cell culture. But this is uh, totally wrong. And so a really interesting contrast was uh, with exosomes because exosomes are very similar to viruses in many ways. They were discovered about 30 years ago and they're little particles uh, about the same size as viruses, but they come from our own cells and they're secreted uh, usually when there's something that is causing damage to the cell. And there are experiments where they're able to isolate and purify exosomes from body fluids. And they they use the same exact procedure that they use for the bacteriophages, which is they filter it uh, because the particles are so much smaller than most of the other things in the uh, fluid. And then they put it through a density gradient centrifuge. Now, so if they can do this procedure uh, successfully and have many publications for exosomes and for bacteriophages, you know, why can't they do it? for these viruses that they say cause disease. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I could come up with is because there are no viruses that cause disease. And if they did this experiment, they wouldn't find anything.
0: Yeah. And and it sounds so radical to the average person who's come from the indoctrination machine of germ theory, you know, the warfare model, to say that there probably aren't any viruses that cause disease. And and yet you're not the only person saying it by a long shot. There are plenty of other people who are challenging this model.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I know I didn't discover this, right? I, and I kind of came to it late compared to many of the people that I respect, and you know, some people I've learned a lot from. But you know, I've I've gone back and looked at all of the evidence and the experiments that were said to support germ theory and the ones that clearly disprove germ theory, and I looked for you know evidence for many diseases that are alleged to be caused by this germ or that germ, including bacteria. And I haven't found any proof of any germ, you know, causing an illness that yeah. stands up to any, any level of scrutiny. And, uh, you know, this virus business is a really big one because most of our vaccines are to prevent viruses, for example, and a virus now is the justification for, you know, totally changing the world, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in a way that I don't want it to go.
0: No, well, that's it. And, and it seems to me that if we can educate people on the issue of germ theory and the, the flaws in it and all the assumptions that are not verified and not proved, that seems to be the most fundamental way to undermine the fascist mandatory vaccination push, you know, this, this fascist medical regime that's sort of trying to take over the world. I mean, if people did not believe in viruses as these invading members of a foreign army,
1: then we wouldn't be susceptible to this mind control. Absolutely, and you know maybe one thing that's really more accessible to people because, you know, over the last ten or fifteen years, people have really come to accept uh, the microbiome, right? That basically are probably a ten to one ratio of microorganisms per human cells in our body, and they really occupy every square inch of our body. You know, they're not just in the gut like many people think, but they have uh, essential role. In fact, even there have been bacteria from the gut whose DNA has been found in cells in our brain, right? So this is like similar to, the, to what people think viruses do, right? So this bacteria, its DNA is mixing with our brain cells, like w- way far away from where it is in the gut. But this is a beneficial function because it probably gives information about what's in our environment because what's in our environment often is in our gut. And so it allows our brain then to manage the situation, whatever is changing in our environment. So this is a really useful people that have their natural microbiome decimated by medical procedures do horribly. Well, you know, they do, they do really poorly they have all kinds of problems. And really the only times that microorganisms really become problematic for us is when they're influenced by some kind of environmental condition. Mm -hmm. like a specific toxin, like antibiotics. I mean, there's something, right, called uh, pseudomembranous colitis. I forget the other name right now, but it's a really bad intestinal infection, C. diff. That's what most people know it as for Clostridium difficile. And this is a a bacteria that actually normally lives in your bowel. So it's there all the time. It doesn't cause any problems. But when you have uh, certain antibiotics that are broad spectrum and very potent, then it causes this bacteria to now defend itself from this toxic onslaught of these chemicals and it puts it into an invasive state, right? That causes this disease that's very hard to treat. And uh, it leads to some people's death because they have uncontrollable diarrhea and like parts of the inside of their intestines sloughs off. It's, uh, It's really nasty. And interestingly, one successful treatment for it is a fecal transplant. Yeah. Which is, (laughs) you know, it sounds a little weird, but it's a totally non-toxic treatment.
0: Yeah. And that goes right against the
1: whole antimicrobial kind of attitude, right? It's the exact opposite, the total antithesis. Exact opposite. So, So think about it. If nature provides us with this rich mixture of organisms that supports our life, and I'm sure we support their life as well in this symbiosis right? Then why would you think that some of these uh, things just go rogue, you know, and want to kill you? It's like, how do they survive? If once you're dead and gone, then they eat all your matter. It's right. They, they got nothing left. That would be uh, poor planning.
0: <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. And it's like you were saying, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we're we're made of these microbes. We're made of viruses. Like the human genome is massively made out of these these fragments of <laughs> DNA, RNA that we've accumulated over, you know, God knows how long we've actually been here physiologically. So this, this mentality of, of fearing all microbes really has no foundation. I mean, if we tried to kill them, if we succeeded in killing them all, we would be dead very quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's a, there's a great quote. I wish I could tell you exactly who said it, but basically said that, you know, if germ theory were true, there'd be no one left alive to believe it. <laughs> yeah that's brilliant
0: <laughs> yeah that's right so yeah i mean i was just listening to zach bush talk about all this stuff from from his perspective and you know he's he's really you guys are sort of saying the same thing about our our approach to viruses is is completely it's completely outdated i mean this this came out of thinking from you know the 1800s and you know louis Pasteur and, and robert Koch, these guys who are charlatans in fact
1: to a large extent. I mean, this is the religion they
0: set up, and we're still here entrenched yeah. in it.
1: Well, you know, the, the virus thing is, is really interesting because, you know, it, the word means poison. And actually, I think these illnesses really represent poisoning in a sense. So it's accurate in that respect. But they, what happened is that they, once they started using microscopes and had this germ theory, I mean, part of it came because when they looked at diseased tissue under the microscope, they saw a lot of bacteria and so they blamed the bacteria you know which which is not really very scientific because that would be like blaming the firemen for starting the fire yeah. right when they're they're there to put it out but there were some illnesses that they didn't see bacteria and so they said oh this must be a virus right meaning some unseen element that's causing it and so the idea was there before, so when they they had microscopic evidence of particles they were already primed to say, you know, okay, we're looking for that. That's what it is. Right. And they couldn't really do that until that one experiment, you know, was uh, successful in deceiving people really because the misinterpretation of it persisted, you know, to this day, without question by those, you know, almost all of those in the mainstream. I mean, there have been a couple of virologists that have recognized this but they're very few and uh, far between. And m- most of them have been, you know, alienated and chastised by the mainstream community. Yeah,
0: we're, we're exactly right. And we know what happens to to the heretics. So unfortunately, there's a bit of a stalemate, it seems, you know, we could have a lot more dissidents speaking out if, if they didn't know what was, you know, because we all know the boot's going to come down on them as soon as they step out of line, which is, why, you know, I think people like you are so valuable and, and um, so, you know, really so brave to step up and do this. And, and I know that um, I saw Spiro ask you, why are you doing this when you know the risks and the flack that you're inevitably going to cop from your colleagues and your profession?
1: I mean, what drives this you to speak up at this point in time, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one thing is it's just the right thing to do. And uh, there's really no risk too great to preserve, like, and expand upon our freedom and uh, ability to make our own choices in life. I mean, that's the only way that I want to live. And that's the only kind of world that I want for my children. And, you know, I mean, there's nothing more important, really, than this. So I'm just doing what I have to do, what I'm compelled to do, what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: Yeah, that's and the duty of any any freedom loving human being really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I believe so.
0: Yeah. Um, Especially when we see these DARPA dogs now being sent out into the streets.
1: Have you seen that? No. Uh, Wait, is this the robots? Yeah. Yeah. Where was that? It it was definitely not in a Western country. I'm, I'm talking about America. Really? There were robot dogs in America? Yeah,
0: there was uh, a trial. They've started running trials sending these things out, and it's already to do
1: with making sure people are social distancing correctly and all this sort of thing. Wow, I wonder how people are going to react to that. I mean, I, you know, there's nothing that surprises me. Are you aware of the uh, Microsoft patent, the 2020060606 patent? Yeah, I, I, I'm aware of it. <laughs> Well, I think, I think, you know, this is a technology that I see exactly how it could be implemented without any fancy unseen new tech, because they basically, what this patent is, and this is an international patent, and, and it has the numbers, you know, the mark of the beast, which refers to the, the lower self, not the divine version of human. And what it is, is a biosensor device that is coupled to a cryptocurrency mining algorithm. So it could basically, the crypto can add funds to your account based on what the biosensor reads. And the biosensor can capture physical data, like your movements, your position, right? Probably your vital signs. But it also specifically mentions uh, brainwave or EEG data. So I see a really uh, controlling way that this could be used with us because if it can monitor your brain waves, similar to the way television does, the original television patent was to have a refresh rate of, I, I believe it's 60 frames per second, which is a rhythm that puts us in an alpha wave brain state. You know, these are standard EEG you can get from your neurologist. It's not some weird device I'm talking about here, but in the alpha state you're highly suggestible. Yeah. Right. And that's why the TV wants you to be that way. So you take in what it tells you, right. And you're more likely to believe it. So for programming purposes, but this device is going to be much more accurate and be able to be applied to an individual, right. Cause you could have a group of people watching the TV and then maybe some people are not paying attention, but this one, you know, so it can tell, it can even probably train you how to get into this kind of suggestible brain state then it will give you specific information, right? Like about, you know, this disease is is, uh, on the rise and you need to get tested, right? Or something like that. Or, you know, conserve electricity, turn out your lights, right? It could be all kinds of things to control your behavior. And since you're in this suggestible state, then you get the information, you're more likely to take it in. Then it gives you the reward by adding some, you know, dollars to your virtual account. Yeah. And so it's basically training you like a Pavlovian dog to believe the desired information that it wants you to, whatever propaganda, right? And to take action to do certain things that they want everybody to do. And so this is I think this is where we're headed. And this is the kind of thinking behind devices like this, that we're not going to be able to make our own decisions yeah. anymore.
0: Yeah. And that certainly seems to be the way, the way that, you know, the, the gates of the world are, are driving this whole thing, you know, on the, on the back of this fake pandemic. So is that patent in connection with the experimental RNA DNA vaccine and the, the electroporation technique or are they separate issues?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, of course, it's all part of the the same system, but I'm, I'm not sure that there's a way that those things specifically relate other than you know, that one of the things that it's probably going to give you money for is taking that vaccine. Yeah, no doubt. So. There's definitely going to be a lot of social pressure to go along with that. But, you know, from what I understand about how this proposed vaccine works, that it's a, a DNA vaccine, um, not the usual technology where there would be like an inactivated virus or some kind of particle. In this case, it's a circular piece of DNA that has some kind of gene on it that they say is from the, from the virus. And they use this technology to basically create little holes in your cells after they inject it so that the DNA gets inside your cells. So your cells can actually express it as, uh, as if it's their own gene and make a foreign protein, and then our immune system is supposed to recognize that somehow as foreign, even though it comes from our own cells, and create immunity. So I don't really see how it can create immunity, and certainly it can not create immunity to a virus that doesn't exist, right? And actually the whole really theory of immunity is probably not accurate at all either. So, but what is this, you know, to do, it's basically way to make a genetically modified organism, right? So you're inserting a gene into the host cell, a foreign gene, and you want that to be expressed. And that's the definition of GMO. So, so they're essentially making us GMO humans with this vaccine. Now, what, what property they want us to have, that is a mystery, And, you know, I don't know what it could be, but there are some things I've heard about that might be a target that if you had a sinister genius plan, you would choose. Like, for example, I think this is back in 2005. There's a leaked video of a like a government agency in the United States talking about this vaccine technology to alter a gene called VMAT2. And a VMAT-2 supposedly is associated with some very religious fundamental beliefs or very religious beliefs. And so in this context, they talked about it as, well, if they vaccinated the population, all of the crazy terrorists would settle down. They wouldn't care about it anymore and they wouldn't attack us, right? And that's their justification for, for doing this. But they would have to vaccinate the whole population, you know, to not going to like have the terrorists line up for a shot. Yeah. So if they were somehow putting in a gene that would alter the expression of VMAT2 in people, because, you know, we know people with strong religious beliefs, I'm not talking about, you know, zealots or terrorists. I'm just talking about your average person who has uh, religious beliefs and a practice. They are, I think, less likely to go along with these government stories and government mandates. Yeah. Right. Because they appeal to a higher authority. Yeah. And so they're a threat to the control system. So I could see something like that, right? I think it's a similar reason why they put fluoride in the water. Sure. Right? To keep us so that we can't attain a higher mental states, that we can see things more clearly. Yeah, yeah. And on the issue of
0: the I can't remember what, what you call it, this gene that yeah. they've identified associated with religious belief, Steiner predicted back when he was alive, predicted that they would someone would eventually develop a vaccine against spirituality. So what you're saying is has just absolutely rendered his prophecy
1: true, unfortunately. So he was he nailed it. Wow, I have to. You know, Steiner has a lot of wisdom relevant to this current situation. You're not yeah. the first person to quote him, <laughs>
0: uh, right? Yeah. yeah, I saw
1: that uh, he made that prediction. I was like, oh, how interesting, because like, we
0: can we can all see that. You know, as you just said, people who have a religious spiritual foundation, they're harder to control, right? They they thwart the control system. They have a higher power that they that they are heeding the call of. And now, obviously, that's a problem. That's becoming an increasing problem for the control system. So wouldn't it be great if we could just nip that in the bud with a quick jab and just have everyone conform, you know? Absolutely. So you see you see this, and I've noticed actually um, over the years, I'm not sure if you've seen it as well, but people, like we're saying, who have that, if you like, inner guidance system or a faith in a higher power, a spirituality of some sort, I've, I've seen over the years, those are the people who are also aware of, The manipulation and the control that goes on
1: yeah well i think uh really opening yourself up to truth is in itself a spiritual process because you have to be willing to challenge uh all of these uh, rules and uh, experiences that you've had right which causes you to go inside yourself and adjust things right which is the inner work and so that's in essence the definition almost of spirituality right? And uh, of course, that helps awaken you to uh, the world outside and uh, what's part of you and what are you a part of and what's the cosmology and all these bigger questions. And, you know, that's going to then bring you back to more truth. So it's like uh, an integral part of things. And so I think it's really important that especially in times like we're in now, it's the time to focus on uh, spiritual work you know, to give some time for yourself to reflect and contemplate, to think about the bigger picture, where things are heading, what can you do in your life, even in your day to make the world better for everyone, right? Including yourself and the ones close to you. Mm. So all this is uh, really vital right now. And it's definitely not something that we want to silence or uh, stifle in the people.
0: Yeah, totally. As I see it, you know, I agree with you totally that we have this sort of dual responsibility or imperative at the moment where we have to do the inner work we, we really need to come back to our center because that's ultimately like that's where the compression point is it's in in our center where we've got these opposing dualistic forces churning all around us and, and pouring into us and it's like you know control and the fear and then the opportunity to step out of fear and all of the, this duality and The inner work is so important because we are holographic beings in a holographic universe, fractal universe, and what happens internally gets exploded out around us externally, right? So on a collective level, we are unconsciously creating our collective circumstances. So we always have to come back within as far as I can see to continue doing the inner work to resolve and heal, heal unresolved issues, emotional charge, wounds, all that stuff. But at the same time, the other part of the responsibility of the equation is that we have to also, we have a responsibility to address the encroaching tyranny at the same time on an external level and say, say no.
1: Yeah. And, you know, healing from, you know, there's a way to look at this as a complementary process, because if we can purify ourselves from the tyranny we suffered in our past, right, and it may not be the same magnitude as now but that's going to teach us a lesson about how we face the current tyranny. You know, are we going to fall back in those patterns? Are we going to cower in fear and and be paralyzed, right? Or are we going to be able to carry forward to have hope for the future, to have uh, compassion for those who are unable to understand or take action or develop their uh, inner selves, right? And so if we can take all of that, uh, perspective, then we can get through this. Even, you know, things may get more difficult for us. I think there's going to be a period of time that's going to be very uh, difficult to get through, but that's why it's critical to take this kind of approach, maintain composure, and optimism throughout the process because, you know, we have the ability to to make a better future.
0: Yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So you see you see the potential. Uh, you believe in the potential for us to ultimately rise above this and transcend ourselves and evolve past the situations and problems that we're creating now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know that everybody is going to uh, get there in time, but I, I think it's quite possible, and I think that's uh, really the future of humanity.
0: Yeah, beautiful. I think that, yeah, I, I feel the same that, in the long run will will survive we will resist the temptation to self-terminate and ultimately there's a, a beautiful world somewhere down the track for us we just need to get our shit together now here and now and and get on top of this right and take like grow up like this is our our going into adolescence from childhood kind of thing like this is our chance to grow up and start becoming adults and own our situation own the choices that we make and and really, you know, we, we can't continue down this path that we've been on that's led us to this situation. You know, like Einstein said, you can't solve a problem from the level of consciousness that created it. So it's on us, really, isn't it, right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, now is really a critical time, right? Because we're in a little bit of a pause here. We're heading into the summer. And if people uh, don't stand up for themselves and start to, you know, behave in a way that is appropriate then, you know, they're basically just showing that it's going to be really easy to get them to go along with almost anything. And, you know, the people who are running this operation, they're going to take advantage of that. Yeah.
0: And do you feel like there's, there's uh, going to be an engineered second wave, or an attempt to, you know, up the ante here?
1: Well, I'm sure that there's almost every contingency plan that you can imagine in the playbook. And uh, certainly, you know, they they have a constraint here that they can't magically say a vaccine is ready after, you know, 12 weeks, right? They they keep saying this time frame of what is it 18 to 24 months or 12 to 18 months that it's been echoed several times. So, I would just trust that that is the time frame for the vaccine and between now and the vaccine there's going to be more fear tactics and more taking away rights right through I think the next phase is contact tracing and through these devices and then door to door, you know, I see where that's going. So what are they going to have to do to get people to agree to that? You know, if they don't agree easily, then, then maybe there will have to be something making people sick, like for real this time, not just, you know, faking it like is currently going on. That certainly is possible, mm. but you know, we'll have to wait and see to know really where it's going to go. Yeah. So vigilance is is definitely advised at this point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As always, but, you know, vigilance and hopefulness. Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think a defeatist attitude is useful. I don't think a nihilistic attitude is useful ultimately. And, and, you know, on a personal level, like why, why choose to take a worldview that makes you feel crappy? Like <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> as as painful as being aware can be, you know, like knowing what's going on is is pretty awful in and of itself. But it
1: doesn't mean we have to project this dark future, right? Yeah. See, I think I would be much worse off if I didn't know what was going on. You know, for me, the truth is a source of comfort. I mean, maybe it took some time to get there, right? Because I had to go through turning everything upside down in my personal world. But now it really, I feel at ease if I don't understand the truth. You know, I'm not saying I have full understanding of all truth, right? I do recognize that there is absolute truth that is not within our control. And, uh, you know, I feel like in some things I have closer glimpses to it, you know, than others. But uh, certainly there are some things that are quite self-evident about this pandemic. And uh, those things are really hard to see for most.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is the, the whole idea of the, the programming. So, I mean, on a personal level, have you copped you know a lot of flack? Have there been many consequences for you doing this and speaking out about this?
1: Well, yeah, <laughs> I've had a few, you know, I've lost a few friends. I've made a lot of new friends. I got fired from a job because I refused to wear a mask. Oh, wow. And that was my last job as a mainstream uh, doctor, wow. actually, just, just a couple of weeks ago. that happened. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid of the consequences because it's more important to protect our freedom. I mean, that's really the most important thing. So if they take me away to jail, you know, I'm still going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm not, I'm not inviting that outcome, but
0: it's, it's possible. That, and that's that's where we've you know in times like these and historically like that is the attitude that people have had to make or to have to make the, the game changing difference. You know, it's it's that attitude of, well, the consequences be damned because I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Absolutely. And if we don't if we don't value freedom that enough that much, then I guess you know we're gonna think, well,
1: here we are. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're not going to have it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, think about it. Everybody who, I mean, you know, in our country, right, it's very mainstream to support all of our military veterans and soldiers. Right. And the holidays, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, they're always a big deal. Right. Every uh, time I get in an airplane, what are they doing? You know, they're like letting the soldiers go first right? They're giving them free drinks, right? There's like all this special treatment. And what's the reason that everybody does that, right? The reason is because they are protecting our freedom, right? Our freedom as uh, Americans had to be fought for, right? And we're taught this all throughout school. And this is a a central, you know, theme uh, that's part of our identity, and now what's happening is the opposite, right? It's like our own government is taking our freedom away from us, something that we always thought they were there to preserve and protect, right? That's what it says in the Constitution in their oath. So it's really just so backwards. But now the burden is on us as individuals to fight for our own freedom because there's, we can't rely on anyone else to do it for us you know, it's, it's gotta be us. And so that's what I really is my main message that I want everyone to think about is what is it worth to you? And what are you going to do to stand up for yourself and protect your own freedoms?
0: Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And, you know, I I would love to, I know I don't want to take up too much of your time because we've done a good solid hour here already. And that would be a fantastic note to finish on, but I would like to actually return to a couple of points to wrap up with, if that's cool with you. Coronavirus exosomes toxicity. You know, you've talked about this and this. The exosomes being endogenously produced as a response. You know, they're part of a cleanup crew. So, I, I would just love you to maybe elaborate on that a little bit for people who maybe not be that familiar with the idea of what this what's going on here.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, all all of our cells make uh, a variety of different kinds of particles and they're essentially just little pieces that break off our membrane and form little like like uh, water balloon type structures and um, these occur in a variety of conditions but there's one specific type that has some significance because it, it seems to have an important function and they're called exosomes and so they're made by our own cells in fact they're made by almost all what's known as eukaryotic cells or higher cells that have formed nucleus and so that's every kind of animal and plant and even some microorganisms. And so they all all these kinds of cells make these exosomes. And one of the main functions that's reported is that they are involved in communication. So they carry some genetic material, just like they say the viruses do, right? RNA or DNA or a variety of kinds. And they deliver that to a target cell. They have a special receptor, which is like a uh, key uh, lock mechanism and they deliver it to the target cell where they have the right, right lock for the key and give that genetic material and its information about how the body can better prepare for whatever's coming in the environment. And usually these exosomes are upregulated when there's some kind of insult like exposure to a toxin, like antibiotics or heavy metals, or if there's a psychological shock or if there's exposure to ionizing radiation or an acute illness, like almost anything that would affect your health causes ourselves to put out these exosomes and communicate. Now, there's also been shown in experiments that some of these exosomes at least can take up toxic substances outside ourselves and protect us from the effects of those toxins. So that's an additional role. But essentially, they're a response to disease. So they don't cause disease. The field of study of exosomes is relatively new, 30 years old, but it's expanding greatly. So there as quite a wealth of information, but not everything is understood. And the, the reason why exosomes are so important to this discussion is because they are so similar to what they've identified and called virus particles that it would be very easy to confuse them. And not only that, they actually have the same uh, DNA or RNA sequences. So there's lots of studies that show basically that part of the RNA or DNA in an exosome is what they would call human, and then part of it is what they would call viral. And if you remember when I was explaining about how the test was developed and how those sequences were determined, I was saying that they're basically a patchwork of human sequences with filled in from a viral database, right? So that kind of fits the exact description of what I just said were found in exosomes, right? But they're not recognized as the same thing they're recognized as something different because we know that they originate from our own cells and at least have some of our own sequences genetic sequences right but really what we're saying is here they're almost the same thing there are many other similarities but here's what i think is the most important thing when they do experiments with exosomes since they have the same exact physical properties pretty much Why are they able to isolate and purify the exosomes in the experiment, but not the virus? Like they use the same technique, you know, they filter it and then they put it through a centrifuge and then they isolate it. And you can see in many of these studies, photographs where you see a pure particle and then they can take that particle and they can take the genetic material out of it and they can sequence it as one whole thing. They don't have to piece it together from these tiny fragments that they're amplifying and there's error and they have to fill in the gaps. They could just take one continuous sequence, and they do this for exosomes. So I think it's really, really telling that you have these scientists who are like right down the hall doing this procedure to isolate exosomes and show that they're real and can tell exactly where they come from and they know their genetic structure. And they can't walk down the hall and say, hey, virus guys, you know, can you, you want to swap procedures? We'll try yours, you try ours or something, (laughs) right? And see how it goes. It would be that simple, really. And so when they do the experiments where they claim to isolate viruses, where they mix it with that cell culture that they damage by giving it antibiotics and such, I think it's very likely that what they're showing under the microscope and saying is a virus are actually exosomes. Now, they could be some other kind of cellular debris as well. So I'm not saying I I know for sure exactly what they were because they don't characterize them. They don't take those particles, purify them out from the rest of the mess, and then look at exactly what they're made of right? If you get a bunch of things, they're all identical, then you could say, okay, they're all made of the same thing. Let's do some analysis and see exactly what they're made of. Take out the genetic material. They don't do that in any of these studies. So I can't say for sure that it's an exosome, but if they did that, we would be able to, but I know that they create the recipe for exosomes because they have mammalian cells plus antibiotics that is known to make exosomes right? Because the antibiotics cause the cell to make them because of their toxicity. So if they're not accounted for in the experiment and there's not a control where they have the same thing minus the, the lung fluid, the source of the virus, well then, you know, how can you say they're not exosomes, right? You can't. And th- this is the problem, you know, with the science. And so that's, that's really my main discovery about Uh, why the exosomes are valuable, because you can't distinguish them without this kind of proof of doing a chemical analysis and sequencing the genetic material. And that's just never been done in the context of a virus paper.
0: Yeah, right. And, And one of the things that I think some of us find galling is that When they do say that they've found a virus in you, a virus in you, and it is the cause of a disease, how can they actually tell, how can they even distinguish that that virus was not endogenously produced?
1: It doesn't even seem to ever be discussed. It's like how do they discern how do they know? Yeah. Well, so, Brendan, they, you know, they, they don't know that, but I'll tell you, it's even much worse because if you look at the papers, so some of these scientists that do these papers are actually honest people. And so the first two papers that claim to, viol- uh, to isolate the SARS-CoV-2, which is the you know, COVID-19 related virus, they actually put in their conclusion that it, the, their experiment only showed an association. So not, not a cause, right? And one of them I think used the word potential. Right. And you know, and they both said that further studies need to be done. And then what happened is that there was basically a miracle in the third paper. In the third paper, in the introduction section, it says it has been determined that this virus is the cause of this respiratory illness, right? But it didn't say that based on any experiment it did in the paper. It said it in the intro. So it gave a reference to this other paper, but the other paper didn't say any such thing at all. The other paper actually hedged it even worse. They said like a potential relationship between the genetics of this and the genetics of a bat virus, not even like whether there's a virus that exists, right? So basically the authors of this paper in the intro section, they just completely made up that it's the cause. And then what happened from there is that, Everyone carried that forward. So they can now reference that paper and say, here, this is the paper that says it's the cause of the illness, right? And all this policy then came out about this virus being a cause, right? I mean, we have to stay away from people because a virus causes this. But there's never been one paper that it said in the conclusion is as a result of our findings, this proves the virus causes this illness. You can't find that. You can't find that. It doesn't exist. So, so, you know, really it's like, it doesn't, I don't have to be the one to say this or conclude this. The, The authors of the studies right there can't make this conclusion of any causality, right? So why do we have all of this hysteria around it when there's no evidence of people dying or of a new illness, and then no evidence of causality with any virus that hasn't really even been identified, there's so many layers of separation from the truth, but all of these things, uh, you know, are just not being scrutinized uh, by hardly anybody.
0: And it seems like River's um, admission from what was it, 1937 when he said no one has fulfilled Koch's postulates for any virus, it doesn't seem like anything's changed since then. I mean, could you give us a quick breakdown of what Koch's postulates are for, for anyone not familiar?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of a common sense set of four rules of how you prove that some germ or microorganism causes an illness. And you're right, it's never been satisfied for any virus. And uh, the first rule is that there's a set of symptoms that constitutes an illness and that you can find this particular germ present in people with that illness and not present in people without the illness. That's the first one. The second one is you can isolate this germ out of the person with the illness and purify it. So it's got to be separated from everything else, not mixed with a bunch of other things. Like in these papers, what they call isolation is mixed with a bunch of other things. Then the third step is that you take the isolated germ and you put it in a healthy host. And, you know, some people say that it's illegal or unethical to do this experiment, but I actually completely disagree Because if you don't do this experiment and prove the cause of a disease, then any treatment that you give is unethical based on that. So if you give millions of people vaccines based on an illness that's not proven to exist, you're doing harm to every single person, right? So, and that's justified because you didn't want somebody to volunteer, you know, for an experiment with a non deadly illness. So, you know, you have to think about these things carefully and they could be they can be used in animal hosts as well, but it really should be human to give you the proper information. So you take this germ and you put it in a human host and then it's supposed to cause the same disease, not not a similar one, but the same one. Right? And then the last step is that you re-isolate that germ from the person you've infected. And that's it. So if you've done those four steps, you've proven that that germ causes a disease
0: all very eminently logical and reasonable it seems absolutely (laughs) and yet no one seems to be able to do it for a virus nope not at all (laughs) well it's a good thing we didn't uh shut the planet down or anything because of (laughs) 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 COVID-19 yeah thank you for that for running us through that something I wanted to touch on earlier and neglected to and you know you've done a lot of really great work in making this visible and this body of research by these scientists over the last 30 odd years putting it on the map so that the lay people can can grasp sort of start grasping what's going on here and what a fraud has been foisted on us really essentially isn't it i mean i don't think that's too strong a word
1: no not at all hmm. i'm glad we I agreed. mean I think, <laughs> I think i think you could call it a, a psychological operation
0: Yes, yes. I think uh, it's a very long running psychological operation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for taking a stand against it with me and with the other warriors of truth out there. Andy, um, I sincerely appreciate your time and your energy and your ongoing efforts. And yeah, may you continue to rock it for us. <laughs> and I hope that hopefully in, in the not too distant future, we'll have another catch up. And hopefully, maybe uh, the situation will be even more optimistic than it currently is.
1: Yeah, I'd like that. Uh, Thanks a lot. And a good way to keep the optimism going.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, man, well, you take care. I've sincerely enjoyed this chat and connecting with you, and hopefully we'll we'll keep in touch.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thanks, me too.
0: Awesome, Andy. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your uh, night. (laughs) Yeah,
1: all right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good good morning. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for tuning
0: in. You're a rock star. Make sure you join me for the next episode. And it would be legendary if you could head over to iTunes for me to subscribe, rate, and even leave a review for the show to help me get this information out to the world. I thank you in advance for that. And you can find the show notes for this episode at truthiverse.com. If you're ready to accelerate your personal evolution with me, go to evolveyourself.live for instant access to my free masterclass, How to Evolve Yourself Without Hard Work, Meditation, or Spending Thousands. And remember, the way to change the outer world is to change your inner world first. Thanks again for being part of my Truthiverse. I'll see you next time for the next episode. Rock on.